Now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, last week we opened up this wonderful little book, and even though most of us don't know much about the book, and even though uh, we don't know much about the prophet himself, uh, we find that this is immediately relatable, because Habakkuk has some serious questions about God. The first one of those is, God, do you even care? He lives among a wicked people in a wicked time, and he wonders if God actually cares about the state of the world that he has made. And God answers him, but the answer isn't something that he was prepared for because God says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a wicked and violent people to judge my people. And that leads to Habakkuk's second big question, and that is not, God, do you care? That was obvious. It's God, is that fair? Is that right? God, are you consistent? God, can I actually trust your character? Because if Habakkuk can't trust God's character, if we can't trust God's character, if we can't trust that God will always be the way that he always has been, then there's really no foundation for any kind of faith or confidence or hope at all. And we left it there. We left it at the end of chapter 1 at that place of kind of tension and discomfort because it's valuable for us to remember that we don't need answers. We want answers. What you and I want are answers. We want the roadmap. We want the path forward. We want to know why A and B are going to equal C and that it's all going to fit together in the end. But what we need ultimately is not answers. What you and I need, what Habakkuk needed, what God's people always need is truth. We need to be driven back to the truth that reminds us who God is and what he is doing in our situation. Because as we ground ourselves in truth, then the changing circumstances don't shake our faith. We need to remember that ultimately, not only is God holy, but that God is moving his people toward holiness. See, God's ultimate agenda is not for our health or our happiness, although on an eternal scale, both of those are guaranteed. God's ultimate move for his people is toward their holiness, and so God will use any number of tools to do that. He's using any number of tools in your life right now to accomplish your holiness if you are among God's people. It might be your kids, your spouse, your boss, your circumstances, your health, but whatever it is, that is what God is moving you toward is the image of his son. Uh, and now we wait for God's answer. That's where we ended uh, at the very end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, the prophet watching and waiting. And chapter two is God's answer. See, the, the intention was to move through the rest of the book today, chapter two and chapter three. Um, that's a lot for me anyway. But then you start to open up chapter 2, and there's just too much good stuff. So we'll get through chapter 2 today, which is basically God's answer. Uh, God's answer in this revelation of his righteousness. God's answer proves his perfect righteousness. And it's going to be amazing for us to look through, I think. So if you are not there already, find your way to Habakkuk chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 to set the stage for where we're going today. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask 
once again, as we do every week, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we are so busy, so frazzled, so torn and broken sometimes that we don't remember that we can't simply come to your word and expect to bring our own knowledge and intuition and have it make any sense. Lord, our sin, our flesh, means that we come with a spiritual blindness, and we need you to open our eyes. But in your mercy, you've promised to do that. So God, open our eyes so that we might see the truth about who you are. And not only, Lord, uh, do we ask that you would help us to see the truth, but we ask that you would give us the strength to respond rightly. That through the power of your Spirit, you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, we are a people who are completely dependent on you. From understanding to application, we need you. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you, how do you respond when you get an answer you don't like? Maybe for a more accurate representation, I should ask your spouse or kids, ask your parents. How do you respond to an answer you don't like? And the answer is most of us struggle with that. I mean, you're sitting on the airplane on the tarmac for six hours, you miss your connecting flight, they move you back into the airport and they tell you not only have you missed your flight, but you now have the privilege of sleeping in the airport overnight. And your very first initial response to that customer service rep, who probably wasn't the one that canceled your flight in the first place, is it might not be the most gracious, most sanctifying response. In our flesh, we struggle with things that disappoint our expectations, but on a much more significant scale, what happens when God is the one who disappoints you with his answer? And you say, I'm a believer. That never happens. God has never disappointed me once. Well, then maybe it's just me, or maybe we're not being honest. What do you do when you consistently bring the prayer to God, and the answer is wait, or the answer is no, or maybe the answer is perceived silence What do you do when you've been praying for something good? Not just for some shallow material need. What happens when you've been pouring your heart out to God for a real need that matters? A good thing, a God-honoring thing, and the answer is no. Remember, that's what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk is not just asking that his life would be easier. Habakkuk is saying, God, do you not see the wickedness among your people? Do you not understand what is going on? Lord, if you are good, if you're holy, if you're righteous, how can you tolerate what is going on here? We have to recognize that Habakkuk is struggling with real things, not because he's not a believer or not because he's a man of little faith, but because he's a man who deeply understands what God is like. And God's answers to his questions seem to be anything but what he expected And today, as we work through chapter 2, as I said, it's God's answer to his prophet. And it's an answer that demonstrates God's perfect righteousness in what he is going to do, no matter what he does. And so we're going to see two main things. And the first thing that we're going to see as God answers is that God's timing is perfect. God's answer is going to demonstrate God's perfect timing. He is not slow. He's not forgetful. He is not late when he acts. His timing is perfect. And the second thing that we're going to see is that God's character is perfect. That God is not unjust. That God is not unfair. That God is not unreliable. 
So let's open up chapter 2, and we're going to see the righteousness of God revealed in his answer to his prophet. Last week, we closed with the prophet kind of watching and waiting, stationed like a watchman in a tower. He said, I have asked these questions toward God, and now I am going to wait, and I'm going to watch. Instead of growing bitter, instead of going back and complaining among the people, instead of trying to take the matter into his own hands, he is going to wait on the Lord. And that is a remarkable, obedient response. He believes that no matter how difficult his situation is, he believes that no matter how little he understands, that God does know and that God will respond to him. And that's the first point that we have to understand here, and that is that God will listen. Part of God's perfection in his timing is the understanding that God will listen to his people. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me. And we have to stop right there for just a second because we breeze right past that. And I wish that more of us would mark down in our Bible and highlight that and be just awestruck by the amount of grace that is involved in those simple words. The Lord answered me. One of the consistent themes of Scripture is that Yahweh, the God of creation and the God of the Bible, stoops down and interacts with, listens to, responds to His people. Psalm 17, 6, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. We moved through the minor prophets. We saw it in Micah 7, 7, where He said, As for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior, my God, will hear me. Same theme moves through the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears attend to their prayer. But what's the point of all of those? The expectation of God's people is that when they cry out, the Lord hears them. Think about what we've heard in the Minor Prophets and even in Habakkuk in particular so far. He has said, God, you are from everlasting. We have this picture of a God who is from everlasting to everlasting, infinite in his nature. But he's not only infinite in his nature, we know that he is infinite in power. We've seen him bring kingdoms down. We've seen him raise kingdoms up. We've seen him judge his people. We know places like Psalm 19 that says the heavens themselves are continually declaring the glory of God, that day after day pours forth speech, night after night reveals knowledge that the creation cries out about the power, the eternal power, and the divine nature of the one that created it. And yet, that God who we have this picture of, who is infinite beyond our understanding, who is wise beyond our understanding, who is more powerful than we can even begin to get our minds around, that God that we can't even perfectly conceive of, he is so infinite and perfect and majestic, that God listens to his finite, fallen, often complaining creatures. He cares about the sorrows and the struggles and the joys of his people. Does that shock you? How many of you have made a customer service call to anyone? Spectrum, the cable company, whoever it might be. How hard is it to get a customer service rep who is paid to do it to care about your situation? We laugh because it's next to impossible. 
And yet the God who made everything, who called Adam out of the dust, who knew every atom and molecule in your body before you were born, the God who every sin of yours and mine's offends, listens and cares. That is a remarkable truth that we should not be so quick to run over. But Habakkuk doesn't end there. That holy God answers his prophet. And in his answer, in the fact that God listens, he reminds us that he also does not lie. God listens to his people, but God also does not lie. Look at what he says in the rest of the verse. Write, it, write this down. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. He says the answer is coming, and it's coming in clear clarity. It's this picture of a runner carrying a tablet. It's a message designed to be read and understood. What God is going to do, he is not doing in secret. He is not being mysterious. Even in his judgment, God says, it is going to be clear what this reveals about me. And he says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. See, from our perspective, a delay in God's response might make it seem like God has either forgotten or failed. God, you promised to help the righteous, to restore the righteous. God, you promised to judge the wicked. But God, I look around and none of that is happening. And as I look around and I see the wicked prosper, as I see sin and injustice not being dealt with, the natural tendency and inclination would be to wonder whether it's going to happen at all. Whether maybe God changed his mind and just forgot to tell us. There's a really adorable example of this within our own congregation here. At the very beginning of the Minor Prophets, back in January, which I know none of you remember, that's okay, I made a request. I said that any kid in our congregation, grade five and below, could come and tell me all of the Minor Prophets and that they would get something for that. I wanted them to be kind of invested in the process and where we're going. And immediately, like that Sunday, between services, four kids came up and they told me the Minor Prophets. They're the Iwana kids. They had the song. And I said, great, fantastic job, guys. At the end, when we've gone through all the minor prophets, you will get the reward. Do you know how many times I have been approached by those four kids who ask whether that is still coming? Because what's the assumption? We did the thing a long time ago, and Pastor Matt didn't give us what he said, and so maybe he forgot. Their first assumption is that I forgot. They know that I'm old and that I am prone to forget, and so they're going to remind me. But they also assume that if it hasn't happened yet, that maybe it's not going to happen at all. That the plan has changed and that I simply didn't let them in and let them know about it. And on an infinitely higher scale, on an eternally more significant scale, you and I have the tendency to say, that if God has not fulfilled his promise already, then perhaps God will not fulfill it at all. Habakkuk needed the reminder that a delay does not mean that God has changed his plan. And by the way, God's promises are often delayed for his people, at least from our perspective. You think about Abraham in Genesis as God comes to him and he makes those remarkable covenant promises. What did God promise Abraham? He promised him land this eternal inheritance for him and his descendants. He promised him descendants, seed, and not just seed, not just a kid or two, but he promised him descendants that were more numerous than the stars or the sand on the seashore, and he promised him blessing. 
He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And yet Abraham comes to the end of his life, and he's experienced blessing, but it would be impossible to see how through him all of the nations of the world would be blessed. He owns a tiny piece of the promised land, essentially the cemetery for his family. And you could very easily count his descendants. And from a human perspective, it would be very easy to see the promises towards Abraham as being failed promises. But the author of Hebrews picks up on that delay. And in Hebrews 6.13, he says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. All that to say it is impossible for God to lie. That when you and I make a promise, we promise by something greater than ourselves. There is no one greater than God. And God's promises are rooted and grounded in his own perfect character. And just because you or I or Habakkuk hasn't seen the outcome of the promise does not mean that God changed his mind. God listens and God does not lie. But then he goes on to say not only does God listen and not only does God not lie, but God is also never late. See, Habakkuk's first big question was what? God, do you even care? If you cared, you would act. And if you care, what are you waiting for? Well, it's clear that God cares. He says that he cares. He says that the promise is going to come. He says that it's going to come clearly. He says, I have not lied. But that leads to the next question. God, all right, if you're going to do something, then why is there to delay? Maybe you're able to do something, but maybe you just can't accomplish it in the right time. But look at what he says next. The vision hastens to the end, and it will not lie. And then there in the middle of verse 3, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God says it's coming, and not only is it coming, but it's coming right on time. The measure of whether God is working or not, the measure of whether God cares or not, is not defined by our human timetable. For you and I, with a limited lifespan, everything has an artificial sense of urgency. Although life seems long from the front end, when your life is measured in decades, everything is urgent. We get little glimpses of this. Maybe some of you remember high school. At least for me, do you remember that in high school everything seemed like the end of the world? If you were not dating by the time you were a sophomore, you were doomed to be alone for the rest of your life. If you didn't get asked to the dance or find somebody to ask to the dance, your social life was over. Everything had this compacted, impressed sense of urgency on it because that was all you knew. And it took forever to get to 16, and it seemed like nothing mattered outside of that. 
we need to be reminded that God knows the end from the beginning. And not only does he know the end from the beginning, but God is eternally existent. No beginning and no end. And God is not limited by our finite urgency. God's timetable is not altered by some kind of limited lifespan. We need to be reminded that God is in the business of appointing times. When he talks about his feasts and his festivals, his sacrifices, he says these are the appointed times when it should happen. When he's giving his message to his prophet Ezekiel, he says the judgment is going to come on Jerusalem at the appointed time. When he's revealing what's going to happen at the end of days to his prophet Daniel, he says these are the appointed times for the end. So what's he waiting for? Why is it that if God appoints the time, why is it that they're slow in coming? And the answer is that God is not only not rushed by some limited lifespan, but God is also not changed in his character. That God's slowness in response is most certainly an expression of his patience, not his forgetfulness. We know that Peter picks up on that. 2 Peter 3 says, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." See, God's patient. He's not late. Even as God gives his message to his prophet Habakkuk, what is happening? The people in Jerusalem have the opportunity to hear and to turn, to repent, to respond. And there's a great command here that we probably wouldn't underline as a command of God. What does he say? If the promise seems slow, what are we supposed to do? Wait for it. What do I do when I've been watching and waiting and expecting God to answer? Wait. What do I do when it seems like time is running out? Wait. And wait with confidence knowing that God is not changed, that God cannot lie, and that God's promises will not be delayed. How can you say that God's promises won't be delayed? What's a promise that you and I cling to? That the Lord is coming again. Is that not one of the precious promises that moves us through our life, that gives us hope and confidence and assurance that that God is coming again, that the King will return? Well, we look, and that's 2,000 years of church history. How can we say that there's no delay in there? Well, the answer is to think of what a delay is. What typically delays you and I? Some of you immediately said, my kids, the rest of you said my spouse. What delays us? It's things outside of our control. Some of you need to have some counseling over lunch. That's all right. What delays us are things outside of our control. My kids cannot find their shoes. My spouse cannot figure out what to wear, or he forgot to do the laundry, so he has nothing to wear or the traffic was out of our control, or we didn't hit the lights, or whatever it might be, what delays us are things outside of our control. And so theologically, what do we know to be outside of God's control? Nothing. And if 
the sovereign holy God has all things under his control, then what could possibly delay his plans? And the answer is nothing. And although the promises seem slow, wait for it. Because God's timing is absolutely perfect. And in two answers, we've had God's answer to, or two verses, we've had God's answer to Habakkuk's big question, his first one anyway, God, do you care? And if you care, why is nothing happening? He does care. He hears, he listens, and he responds in his perfect timing. But what about the second question? Is it right? God, is it right? Is it just? Is it fair for you to use a wicked people like Babylon to execute justice on your people? And the rest of this chapter is God's answer to that second question that proves that God's character is still perfect. That God's righteousness is not on trial, but that through his response, God's perfect righteousness is revealed. God's character is beautifully demonstrated. And, and the heart of that question is whether God's standard has changed. God, do you still know the difference between right and wrong? And the answer comes very quickly, and that is that God does still demand righteousness. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God, do you care? God, is there any difference to you between right and wrong? Because if there was, it doesn't seem like the wicked would prosper. And God says, I still know the difference between right and wrong. The arrogant, the prideful, the one whose soul is puffed up within him is contrasted with the righteous. And it says the righteous will live by faith. And that second half of verse 4 is one of the most pivotal foundational ideas, not just in the minor prophets, but in all of Scripture. How will God's people live? How will the righteous live? The righteous one will live by his faith. That is picked up and quoted directly three times in the New Testament, and it is so important that I want to actually move there and answer why that matters so much. Because the question behind the question, does God care? Yes, but is God just? I think we would all kind of intrinsically say yes. Is God righteous? Not many of us would say no, although it doesn't seem like it. But the question is, so what are we supposed to do about it? If we're supposed to wait because his timing is perfect, if we're supposed to wait because we know that he hears, if we're supposed to wait even though the promise seems slow and we know that it won't delay, how in the world are we supposed to wait in these circumstances? And the answer is this, the righteous shall live by his faith. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he is a messenger of the gospel. He is a minister of the gospel, and he says, I am not ashamed of that gospel. Why? Because that gospel, that singular message of the hope found in Jesus Christ, is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, there is one saving message, and Paul is a messenger of that saving gospel. But look at what he writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For in it, that is, for in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you see the quote from Habakkuk there, and most of us don't know that that was a quote from Habakkuk, but now you do. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that the gospel demonstrates the righteousness of God. How? Because God is holy and sin must be dealt with. 
And God's people are sinful and fallen. And the Gospel tells me that on the cross, the perfect, righteous Son of God took on the sin, the unrighteousness, the uncleanness of all who would be called to Him in faith. And that God maintains His righteousness as the Son bears the penalty for our sins. But that's not all that the Gospel says, is it? Because the gospel also talks about what goes the other way, and that is that the goodness, the righteousness, the right standing of Christ is now placed on his people. And so we who were sinners, fallen, failed, separated from God, are now seen with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What's Habakkuk's question? Is God still just? And Paul picks up that question and he says the gospel proves that it is. That the righteous will live by faith. And we know that the righteous are only righteous because God places his righteousness on them. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Just a bit to the right in your Bible. The Galatian church had started off well, but they had taken a dangerous turn. At some point, teachers had begun to come in and say that faith was fine, but if you really wanted to be saved, if you wanted the completion, the perfection of your salvation, then what you really needed was to keep the law as well. And Paul says that everyone who relies on the works of the law is under a curse because no one can keep the law perfectly. If you trust the law, if you live by the law, you will die in the law. And then he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Good works don't save you. They don't save you at the beginning. They don't complete your work, their faith at the end. How is it that the righteous will find life? And the answer is by faith. Habakkuk looks at a world that seems to be falling apart that he can't make sense of given God's character. And he says, how am I supposed to live in the middle of this? Well, the answer is not a matter of keeping the law. The answer is not a matter of perfection in his works. The answer is that the righteous will live by his faith. Whether Assyria rises, whether Babylon rises, whether the king in Jerusalem is righteous or wicked... God's people, the righteous, will live by faith, by the steady, settled assurance that God is who He always has been and that His character is unchanged. Turn to one more place, further to the right, Hebrews chapter 10. It's where we read from this morning. Again, in Hebrews 10, the author talks about this better sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this perfect offering that's better than bulls and goats, that allows us to come before God with full assurance of our faith, He says we can draw near knowing that our consciences are sprinkled clean. He says let us hold fast to the confession. He says don't waver because the one who promised is faithful. And because he's faithful, we can continue to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. We can encourage one another with the idea that the day of God is drawing near, that the time of our redemption is coming. He reminds them of how they used to live. He says, back in the beginning, remember how you used to live when you were first enlightened. He said, uh, you were compassionate. 
He said, when people were thrown in prison, you willingly went and visited them. He said, you took the public shame and the scorn and the reproach and the rejection, and you bore that gladly. He said, you you willingly gave up the things that people were stealing from you, knowing that you had an inheritance that people couldn't touch. And the author says they need to have endurance, because look at verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. Times are hard. And to the author of Hebrews' audience, the promise seemed a long way away. They were getting crushed for their obedience. And the natural question would be, God, where are you and where's the promise? And he says, he's not late. He won't delay. So what do we do while we wait? In impossible, difficult circumstances, You live by faith, show compassion, love others, willingly accept the rejection of a hostile world, even when it comes to losing your things, your reputation, even your life, because you know that you have this lasting, untouchable inheritance. That's exactly what Habakkuk needed to hear. It's exactly what Paul's readers needed to hear. It's exactly what the Hebrew audience needed to hear. It's exactly what we need to hear. And then the rest of the chapter balances that call for righteousness. How will the righteous live? They will live by their faith. But the rest of the chapter answers the question, what about the unrighteous? Does God's character remain constant? Yes, God still demands righteousness in any and every circumstance. But what happens when you are unrighteous? And the answer is, well, God still deals with sin. And some of you are looking at your watch. Don't worry, these go really fast. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, he says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? This is introducing this taunt song, this mocking poetic exposition of the ultimate failure of the wicked. And God pronounces five woes against those things that he hates. Why does that matter? Because he's reminding his prophet that God still stands against those same things that he always stands against. That he still condemns sin the way that he's always condemned sin. And the first woe is in verse 6. Look there. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. First woe is pronounced essentially against the greedy. They pile up what doesn't belong to them. They stockpile what they want, even when it means taking advantage of others. And God despises greed. Why? Because it is a rejection of who he is and what he has provided. Greed tells me that I can own things. That through whatever means necessary, I can gather things to myself for my possession. Whereas God's word makes it clear that he owns all things. And not only does he own all things, but that he gives to his creation what is necessary in the proper time. Greed tells me that I must gather together so that I can meet every need that I have. And ultimately, it demonstrates a complete lack of faith, a lack of understanding that God owns all things, and a lack of faith that God will provide for his people. And so God will destroy the greedy. Look down to verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. The second woe is pronounced against the unjust, the one who gets evil or unjust gain. They take advantage of others to elevate their own position. They feel high and untouchable when they are pressing others down. 
And God hates injustice. Why? Because he is the perfection of justice. And because he has called his people to be just. You remember when we went through Micah, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And God will destroy the unjust. The third woe, look down to verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Third woe is pronounced against the violent. They build their cities. They grow their empire and their influence through bloodshed. They gain power by conquering and by killing. What do they forget? That God establishes kings and kingdoms. That God builds up and that God tears down rulers. Look at the remainder of verse 14 there. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Raise the biggest army. Build the biggest wall. Construct the most devastating weapons of war that you can imagine. And in the end, one king and one kingdom stands. One king before whom every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is going to destroy Assyria. God will overthrow Babylon and Persia and Rome and the Byzantines and the Turks and the Ottomans and the English and the Prussians And the Americans, given enough time, every kingdom comes with an expiration date. Every kingdom but one. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. As a graphic image of someone taking advantage of their neighbor. Uh, but the condemnation here is basically toward lust. Most often we think of lust in terms of physical desires, uh, certain physical appetites, and that is certainly part of it. But lust is basically the desire to satisfy the flesh in any number of ways. And God despises lust because it's kind of a perverted order of desires. Mankind was made to desire, to long for a relationship with his creator. Sin twists that. It perverts that. It changes the order and makes us the desire, it makes the desire above all things for self. And God says that he will destroy the lustful, that he will turn their glory into shame. And then one final condemnation begins in verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. We've seen God condemn idolatry among his own people, and now we see the absolute perfect uh, continuance of God's character in that he also condemns idolatry among the nations. God does not have a people and then allow everyone else to worship however they want. God is jealous for the worship of all humanity because God alone stands as the creator and Lord and sovereign over all humanity. And to place your faith in something that you have made is the extent of human foolishness. To build an idol, to craft it, to give it features, 
to set it there in your home and then expect that something that you have made now has power over your life. It's, it's madness, really, but more than a logical inconsistency, it's an affront to who God is. To trust in idols is... It won't fit together with an understanding of the God of all creation who provides for his creation. And yet sinful men continue to go back to wicked idols. In verse 19, can it teach? The answer is no. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. It doesn't live. It has no life. How could there possibly be any provision for your life? And then as we come to the very end of chapter 2, what's the conclusion? What's the final word? What is the underlying truth that moves Habakkuk from his questions in chapter 1 to worship in chapter 3, which is where we'll get last year, or next week, (laughs) next year? These idols are useless. They're silent. They're lifeless. But look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple Let all the earth keep silence before him. The conclusion is that the Lord reigns. There is one God in all creation is called to awestruck, worshipful silence before him. And you and I are faced with the same choice today that Habakkuk was. In your circumstances, in your situation, who will you serve? Will you live by faith as the righteous or will you serve the flesh as the unrighteous and the answer has nothing to do with your circumstance it has nothing to do with how much pain you're in it has nothing to do with how much provision you're living under it has everything to do with what you know to be true about god and the answer to that question of who you serve determines whether the lord stands for you or stands against you so what are we supposed to do with this how do we think as we leave today Uh, Three things. Uh, First of all, even in your situation, no matter what your situation is, good, bad, happy, sad, painful, prosperous, even in your situation, first of all, God is not slow. You and I need to be constantly confronted with the idea that our perspective is limited, that we have a false sense of urgency, a false sense of unthinking that we understand the situation, but that God is not slow that even when it seems like he's in danger of missing his window to act, he is not uncaring, he's not late. And even in his delay, there's a purpose. The second thing, even in your situation, God is not unjust. Your situation might be unjust. Wicked men and women will still be unjust. Your circumstance might be unjust. But even in your situation, God is not unjust. Whatever tool he is using to refine you, to purify you, to make you more like him is exactly what is necessary. And even if we cannot see the final outcome from where we are, in the end, God brings all things to account. All sin for every creature that has ever lived, every human being's sin, will one day be brought to full account, either through Christ on the cross or through eternal separation in hell. And finally, even in your situation, Even in difficult times, you are called to live by faith. Even in your situation, whatever your situation is, the righteous shall live by faith. That is not just a pat on the head to say that everything will be okay. 
That is not just to say, well, if you just prayed a little more, prayed a little better, gave a little more, served a little more faithfully, showed up at a few more church services, uh, then we would able to be able to see your faith and everything would be fine. That's not what I'm saying. What it is is the call to continue in faithful obedience, whether you can see the outcome or not, whether you can see the end or not, whether you can see God's purpose or not. It's the call to live by faith, knowing that faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things unseen, that faith requires an understanding of the perfection of who God is and the absolute trust that He will accomplish all of His purposes. Yes, even in what you're going through right now. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to live faithfully in the middle of an unfaithful, unjust world, and we can't do that on our own. But even as we go through that call to remember that the just, the righteous will live by faith, we're reminded that you give the strength to obey that, that our righteousness comes from you, that our ability to sustain our faith, to to bear up under difficult circumstances comes from you. Lord, we're reminded that you have promised to provide the means for our obedience, even in impossible circumstances, that you will give us a way out of temptation that you will sustain us through pain and difficulty, and that ultimately in all things you will make us more like your Son. So Lord, help us to remember who you are. Help us to respond in joyful, confident, worshipful obedience, no matter what circumstances we're going through. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.